you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19 this morning. Luke chapter 19. It was going to be a defining moment for the lives of thousands of people. Archelaus' father, Herod the Great, had died, leaving behind the throne of Judea. Not only did Herod will his throne to this, his favorite son, Archelaus, but everybody knew his ambitions for power. There was no doubt that he indeed would be ruling on that throne, that he would take it and take it he did. But the throne was not enough for Archelaus. His father Herod had been granted the the title Rex or King by the Romans, though they themselves rarely used the title for themselves. It was only given to Herod after he had helped them defeat the Parthians in battle, and afterward he was allowed the great privilege of actually feasting with Mark Antony himself on the first day of his reign. Now though, like his father before him, Archelaus wanted the title Rex. He wanted to be recognized as king, but he could not take that title for himself. It could only be granted by Rome. Thus, just after a few months of reigning, Archelaus set out for an audience with Caesar Augustus to make his appeal and hopefully to be crowned king in the temple of Palatine Apollo. He traveled with many of his friends and family, wanting them to be there to rejoice with him in this spectacular event. But when he arrived, things did not go as he expected. A delegation of 50 Palestinians, Jews and Samaritans together, had traveled to also meet with Caesar and oppose Archelaus' reign. Joining from the Promised Land were also 8,000 expatriate Jews who were now living in Rome, and they gathered before Caesar 8,000 to oppose Archelaus' reign. They recounted how not long before he had slaughtered over 3,000 Jews during the Passover, piling up the bodies in the temple, really for no other reason than wanting to show that he was just as powerful as his father Herod. Added to this unnecessary cruelty, they argued that he was corrupt, he was inept, and he was ruining the land over which he would govern. Adding insult to injury, some of Archelaus' own family likewise testified before Caesar that he was not fit for the title of king. Other sons of Herod petitioned that they might rule over Judea in his place. What Archelaus thought would be an easy and joyous journey had quickly become a heated confrontation. The assembly took far longer than he had anticipated, and he left without the prize he longed for. Though he literally threw himself at Caesar's feet at the end of the deliberations, Josephus, the ancient historian, recalls, ancient historian, records that after much deliberation, Caesar allowed Archelaus to continue his reign, but only gave him the title Ethnarch, promising to give him the full title of Lex, only if he would prove his worth after a time of observation. But such a granting never took place. Enraged by the opposition he faced, Archelaus returned to Judea, seeking vengeance on all his enemies, ruling with an iron hand. Rather than prove his worth, he only proved further his cruelty, and he was banished just a year later. Now these historical events that you can read about in almost any history book happened just shortly after the birth of Jesus Christ. 
It was thus just 30 years in the past, and this political scandal still remained in the minds of all the Jews as Jesus walked the earth. It was not something that would be easily forgotten. And as Jesus was now approaching Jerusalem, as the disciples were looking forward to him receiving his kingdom, Jesus knew that they had misunderstandings about what that kingdom would be like. And therefore drew on this powerful illustration of Archelaus to help correct their misunderstanding that they might more clearly understand his mission and his kingdom. With Archelaus in mind, listen to the parable that Jesus teaches this morning. Luke 19, beginning at verse 11. As the disciples heard these things, that is the things that he had been teaching just previous to this, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and, asked, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, the mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And to you be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have at least collected the interest. And he said to those who stood by him, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is God's word. Hear it today and believe. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the kingdom did not come as the disciples were expecting before his death and resurrection. And Jesus knows it's not going to come the way they're expecting. And as he has done in the past, he is wanting to prepare them for something different. He wants to correct their preconceived ideas and get them ready for what the kingdom will really be like. Even today, to those of us who live thousands, almost 2,000 years after the cross and resurrection, we can have a misunderstanding about what the kingdom of God is to be like. We can have a misunderstanding about what it is we are to be doing and thinking as we await the return of our king. So the question we want to ask this morning is precisely that. What does Jesus expect of us while we await his return? How are God's people to live while we wait for Christ to come back? Well, in order to understand that, we must first recognize the kingdom's sovereign. 
we must recognize the kingdom's sovereign. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable, Luke says, saying, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Who is that nobleman? It's Jesus in the context of the parable. Luke makes it clear in verse 11, he's telling a parable about himself and his kingdom. He is the nobleman who will be king. But what is Jesus like as a king? What kind of king is he? We do not have an exhaustive explanation, but we do have a good snapshot. What we see are five characteristics of Christ as king. First, he is a reigning king. He is a reigning king. Before the kingdom of Christ is seen in its fullness, Jesus must go into a far country and obtain the right to rule. Now, Jesus is not speaking literally here as if he's leaving Israel and going to some other nation state to receive a kingdom. But the New Testament is clear that Jesus is given the right to reign because of his obedience to God the Father and going to the cross. And that afterwards, he goes, as it were, to the Father to receive that authority. In fact, we just sang about that this morning in the song, Highest Place. Now, I, I like that song. It's the reason why I introduced it to our church several years ago. But there's something completely unremarkable about that song. It's simply the words of Philippians 2 put to music. So what does Philippians 2 say? Well, let's be a slightly more clear, but nevertheless, you'll see that there's not much different in the song. Paul says that though Jesus, Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, that is, because of his faithful obedience, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so Jesus is fully God in every way. Colossians 1 said he is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. But he's not just God, he is God the Son. The Bible is clear that God exists as one God eternally, but also as eternally three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as the eternal Son, Jesus is fully obedient and submissive to his heavenly Father. That means that as the Father plans salvation, that's the language that Paul uses in Ephesians 1, as the Father plans redemption for sinners, his plan is for the Son to enter into the world, to be a perfect representative of humanity, the perfect embodiment even of his people Israel. Though they were rebellious, though all humanity is sinful, Jesus is the perfect servant. He always obeys his Father's will. He does everything that he is called to do, everything that we are called to do, but will never be able to do because we are sinful. But God's plan went beyond Jesus living a perfect life. It also involved his humiliating death on a cross as our righteous proxy. That death was not one that he deserved, but that we deserved. And yet, because he was obedient to God's plan, he stood in our place and bore the wrath reserved for us. And the result is that he has earned the right to be called king. That's what Philippians 2 says. He has earned the right to be king over his kingdom, and that kingdom will extend to all of creation itself. Even now, he is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. After his death, death and resurrection, he discipled his believers for 40 days and then he ascended. He went, as it were, to that far country 
to receive the fullness of the kingdom over which he even now reigns, and yet that the fullness of that kingdom is not here. In the context of the parable, he has gone to that far country of heaven, and there he remains ruling and reigning until he returns to fully establish his kingdom on this earth. And in that way, Jesus is not just a present reigning king, but he is also a returning king. Jesus is a returning king. In the parable, Jesus makes it clear that he will return having received his kingdom. When the fullness of time arrives in the wisdom of God, Christ will return to this world and he will fully establish his reign. But notice that while he is away, he has left his servants in charge of his resources in order to engage in business until he comes. That's what he says in verse 13. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, calling 10 of his servants. He gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, if you've been reading through the Bible with us every two years, uh, you'll, you'll recall in Matthew's gospel, you see a very similar parable being told here. But though there's lots of the same language and imagery, there are several key details that are different, pointing us to different emphases and applications. That worries some people. They think that Jesus told one parable and that Matthew has changed it, that Luke might have changed it. But the reality is, at its simplest terms, Jesus was just a traveling preacher in his day. For the three and some years of his ministry, that's what he did. He traveled around village to village, city to city, proclaiming the gospel and healing people as he went. And so like any good preacher, he reused illustrative material. Uh, He he would have found those, those common themes, pictures, ideas that would have appealed to many people and reemployed them in different ways as he taught. So it's not a threat to the integrity of the Gospels at all that Jesus does this. The emphasis in Matthew is on the individual and distinct giftedness of every believer. The parable of the talents. You think about how even from the history of the English language, how talent in in the context of that parable being given money called talents, that that word is now taken on the very meaning of the parable, which is abilities and gifts. We are all talented people. Where does that come from? From God, and we ought to use it in those ways. But the emphasis here is different. The emphasis here is different. Notice that each of the ten servants receives one of the ten minas. Now, what's a mina? Well, much like the talent originally in the parable, it's just a form of currency. We have the dollar, the Brits have pounds, Mexicans have pesos, and on and on and on and on. Among other things, the Jews and the Greeks had minas, and it was about the equivalent of three months' wages for the average servant. And in this parable, the king entrusts to each of his ten servants one of the minas and tells them to engage in business while he's off in the far country receiving his kingdom. While he is away, the cat should not play, but the servant should be at work. That's what he's teaching. Notice also that he is going away, it says, into a far country. What does that mean? I think we are to understand that to mean that his return will not be soon. Now, I know that there are many people that uh, were taught in seminary and have heard from pulpits that all the disciples, even after the cross and resurrection, thought Jesus' return would be soon. And what I want to tell you is that you do not find that in the New Testament. That is what unbelieving scholars uh, said the disciples believed in order to discredit them as reliable witnesses, to discredit them as apostles, and to discredit the authority of God's word. See, look, the apostles were wrong. That's not what they believed. 
Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come and, and fill their minds and hearts in such a way they would be able to recall and understand the things that Jesus taught. And if you read closely Paul's letters and instructions, he is looking for the long haul. You look as the apostles are dying and they're looking forward to the long haul of the church, generation after generation after generation, not knowing at all when Jesus will return, but knowing he went to a far country. It's not going to be immediate. They, they were, their, their, their faith in Christ was not rocked because they did not see him in his lifetime and neither should we. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. We should be not a little comforted and encouraged. We should have not a little assurance that even after 2,000 years, Jesus has not forgotten about us. He told his disciples in this context that he was going on a long journey, metaphorically speaking, and yet he would not leave us as orphans. He would not forget us. He will return. And while we were gone, we ought to be about his business. That was the expectation of the returning king. And when he returned, for those that were about his business, he would bring rewards. Here's the third characteristic of his reign. He is a rewarding king. A rewarding king. The king left for a far country. What happens when he returns? Jesus says, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now, Jesus doesn't describe all 10 servants in the parable, but he gives us some representative samples. In that sense, the details are not always uh, super important. First, we have this man who has taken the money that's been entrusted to him, one mina, and he's produced 10 minas, a thousand percent increase. What is the king's response? Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful and very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Then another servant comes to him and says, Lord, your mina has made five more, 500% return on the deposit the king has made. What does he say? You are to be over five cities. But then this other servant comes. He had failed to do business with the king. He said, Lord, here is your mina. You gave me one, I return one. I kept it hidden away in a handkerchief. Why would you do that? I was afraid of you. You're a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, you reap what you do not sow. Now, do you, see the, do you see what he's done here? He said, I didn't do what you told me to do because you are not a very good king. I disobeyed your orders because you are failing in the air, air area of your character. It's an attack on the king. What is the king's response? I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man? taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? I read it that way because I think that the king is conveying a tone of sarcasm. Everything that he has demonstrated before and after, everything in this parable reveals not one who is severe, but one who is generous. He doesn't just say, take your wages. He entrusts these men with something and the rewards are far beyond what they were entrusted with. I mean, think about, think about this. You're given one mina to manage, you get 10 back, and you're given management over 10 cities. You're not getting that kind of promotion at any job you work in this life. The reward is not proportionate to the service that has been rendered. The problem is not the king. The problem is the servant using an excuse for his laziness. Sometimes even today, we can't see the generosity of our king. We want to complain about the harshness of 
this life, the circumstances in which God calls us to serve. But Jesus is telling us the reward is going to be worth it. The reward that is coming will be disproportionately generous to whatever difficulty we have had in this life. We will not, we will not receive the king when he returns and say, you know, Lord, it's been pretty rough since you've been gone. When he returns with the reward that he has for his people, we will say, that was nothing compared to what I am receiving now. Thus, the wicked servant twists the character of the king into an excuse for his own laziness. The result is that he shows he is no real servant at all. And what he has been given is taken away and given to another. And we dare not make the same mistake. We dare not make the same mistake. Jesus is a reigning king, a returning king, a rewarding king. Finally, from this parable, we see that he is a righteous king. He is a righteous king. Beyond this wicked servant, there are those who actively and openly rebel against this nobleman who will become king. Verse 14 says that some of his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Sound familiar to the historical context? Just as the Jews and the Samaritans sent a delegation to Caesar to say they didn't want Archelaus to rule, so also in just a few days, the people of Israel will send a delegation to Pilate and say, we do not want Jesus as our king. Pilate says, is this not the king of the Jews? And what is their response? We have no king but Caesar. That is astonishing if you know biblical history. If you've read the Old Testament at all, that is absolutely astonishing. Read the Psalms. There is a throne in Israel upon which a, a son of David sits, but God is always their king. Israel was the covenant people of God redeemed from slavery. He was the object of their gracious affection, though they were the smallest of all nations. He said, I loved you. Like, like an aborted baby left on the side of the road, I picked you up, I cleaned for you, I, I cared for you, I cleaned you up, I took you in and adopted you as my own. And yet they struggled again and again and again with rebellion in their hearts, choosing God not to be their king. You think about how 1 Samuel begins and you have this young man who is, is uniquely endowed with God's spirit, serving as prophet and judge over the people of Israel. But they begin to complain. They begin to whine and say, we want a king like all the other nations. And, and Samuel is distraught. He's like, well, why are you saying that? Why would you ask that? And God appears to Samuel and says, look, there's nothing wrong with you. You've been a good servant, but here's the thing. When they say they want a king like the nations, they're saying, we don't want God as our king. We don't want God as our king. It's me they have rejected. And, and they struggle with this sin over and over, right up until God himself takes on flesh and stands before them, and they still say, we have no king but Caesar. And while we're tempted to look on them with scorn and derision for that, it is in the heart of every human being to struggle with the reign of Christ in their heart. We continually struggle and challenge the kingship of God in our life. Who will be king over our life? Who is king now? Are we allowing ourselves to be ruled by our own sinful desires and foolishness? Or will, do we seek to bow the knee to God? Do we seek to bow the knee to his king, Jesus Christ? If we don't bow the knee, then as in the parable on the day of Jesus' return, he will say, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, Jesus is no Archelaus. 
He's not getting vengeance. He's not getting payback. He's not arrogant. He's not cruel. He's not inept. He is a righteous ruler. He is God in the flesh. Here's the, here's the truth of the matter. When we reject God, it's not a matter of preference or freedom. It's a matter of wicked rebellion. It's a matter of rejecting the very fountain source of all love who extends every grace and mercy ceaselessly to people who do not deserve it. To reject that, to reject him, is a just cause for a righteous king to condemn us to hell. That's, that's the kind of king that, that Jesus is. A good and glorious, a righteous king. So how should we live how should we live in light of them? How do we take that truth and apply it to our lives? Well, quite simply, secondly, we see that we ought to live as the kingdom servants. We ought to live as the kingdom servants. How do we do that? Two things. First, we need to remember that God has trusted us to be faithful. We are trusted to be faithful. If we are part of the people of God, if we have bowed the knee to Christ, if we have looked to Him with saving faith, then God has trusted us to be faithful. When Jesus tells the parable about Himself and His kingdom in verse 12, He says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. When we read that, we should understand ourselves to be Jesus' servants in that parable. Specifically, servants who have been entrusted with a gift. What is that gift? What have we been entrusted with? Remember that Luke is recalling a different parable than Matthew. Matthew is teaching, uh, or what what Jesus is teaching in Matthew is, is different about the varying degrees of giftedness. But here, notice the servants are all given the same thing. They're all given the same amount. What is the one thing the New Testament says over and over and over that every believer has the same thing of that they have been entrusted with? It's the gospel itself. That's the gift. That's the mind with which we have been entrusted and told, go do business. Say, how do you know that? Because in 1 Timothy, Paul says that he had been entrusted with the gospel as an apostle. And likewise, Timothy had been entrusted with the deposit, the good deposit of the gospel. And his next letter to Timothy, he says that he is to, that is, Timothy is to find good and godly men, other leaders with which to entrust the gospel for the church. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2, he says that all God's people have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So if you've been with us on Sunday nights in one of our community groups, you know, you know over the past several weeks just how precious a thing the gospel is. You've seen Paul's deep concern for the Galatians who are turning away from the deposit they've been entrusted with to a false gospel. And Doug has done a great job in that study, forcing us to see again and again and again the unchanging centrality of the gospel and its importance for our daily life, the importance for our daily worship, the importance for the theology that we believe. Man didn't make the gospel, so man can't change it, but man can't live without it. He has no hope apart from the gospel of Christ. So loved ones, what are you doing? What are you doing with the most precious message ever given to humanity? What are you doing with the gospel? How well do you understand and cherish the gospel of Christ? Have you been faithful? Are you faithful with the gift that God has given to you? Are you satisfied with knowing just enough to be the recipient of saving faith? Or do you delight to plumb the depths of God's grace in the gospel? Are you satisfied with a perfect creedal affirmation of the doctrine Or do you glory in the gospel daily for the progressive sanctification of your soul? 
If Christ is the bread of life, then like hungry Israelites in the wilderness, make the gospel your daily manna. Feed your soul with it morning, noon, and night. For only in that faithfulness will you be able to serve the way that Jesus expects. And that is with fruitfulness. We are to serve with expected fruitfulness. That's how we live as his servants. There is an expectation that we will be fruitful for Christ. Now, those of you that were studying John Owen with us this past summer, do you remember how the book ends that we looked at, The Mortification of Sin? There, there's, we joked about this, in, in, at least in our group. There's 90 pages of study, explanation, direction, and it all leads up to the last five pages of the book where he says, now I'm actually going to tell you how to mortify sin. And we thought, what, what was the last 90 pages about? Did he just tell it to us in five pages? Well, why did he do that? Because... If all you have are the last five pages, you're not going to understand it. You're going to misapply it and you're going to fall into all the mistakes that he warned you about in the first 90 pages. It's the first 90 pages that allow him to give you the last five. So even though it's a very long introduction, apart from that, you're you're not going to get it. And frankly, that's a bit like this sermon. Everything has been, there's been no direction at all. It's all information leading up so that you understand how best to fulfill Jesus' one overriding point in this parable. And that is being fruitful with the deposit that you have been given between his first coming and his second coming. That's the point. That's what this parable is about. How do you, dear Christian, Do business for the kingdom with the gospel that you have been given. You've been entrusted with it. You've been given the mina. What are you doing? We know we're called not to live for ourselves, but for God's kingdom. We live for the king's business, the king's agenda, the king's glory. But is that how we live? Is that what we're doing? Or are we tucking ourselves up into a spiritual handkerchief, waiting it all out with laziness and self-centeredness? You know, we've had a couple of people, a couple of young people here in, in recent uh, months get some tattoos. Whenever that happens, people ask me, so Pastor John, are you going to get inked? Are you getting a tat? And um, frankly, I've thought about it. But the thing is, the tattoo that I would get if I got one, and I don't have any plans in case you're wondering, some of you are going, <gasps> there's no plans there, but it's all a variation on the same thing. And that is the Greek word doulos, which is translated here, Servant. Because the reality is, for my life, for your life as a Christian, all the roles, all the responsibilities, if you distill it all down, the one thing that we are more than anything else are servants of Christ. And if I were to permanently mark my body with any reminder of who I am, what my identity is supposed to be, what I'm about, it would be that, doulos, servant of Christ. That's what we're told to do in the passage. We're given the responsibility. We're given the trust to be servants doing the king's business. But again, are we living that way? I think the most striking thing for me in this passage is the fact that the only person called wicked in this passage are not the enemies who are destroyed, but the imposter servant who does nothing. Think about that. Think about that. Doing nothing for Christ with what we have been given is wickedness before God. Doing nothing for Christ when you've been called to do something for Christ is wickedness before God. So we ask ourselves, are we we about the king's business? 
or, or are we wrapping up the gospel in a handkerchief? Now, we could unfold the implications of that for several weeks, but here's some, some kind of low-hanging fruit questions, some, some easy indicators about where we're at. If you say things like, well, I go to church whenever I can, your life is wrapped in a handkerchief. If you say, I don't really have the time to look outside my family and my circle of friends to invest in other believers in intimate relationships in sacrificial community or make disciples of those going to hell, your life is wrapped in a handkerchief. I don't want to serve on Sundays because I miss Bible study and sermon. Wrapped in a handkerchief. I'm too afraid to talk about Jesus. Wrapped in a handkerchief. Now the reality is we can, we can go on. We can go on and on and on and on and on and on and list lots of things and get very uncomfortable in here for you and for me. But here's the reality. If we have at all been listening to the text, if I have at all been preaching the way that I should, then I imagine the Spirit is already at work digging into your heart and exposing where you're wrapping up the gospel in your life, not living the way that you should. He's done that for me this week. I have to say that this, this passage has landed hard on me this week. So this is not a you, you, you. This is a us, us, us kind of message. It is very easy to be that wicked servant. And if the Spirit is pricking your heart, if He is guiding you to make changes, do not resist, but repent. Repent and by God's grace together, let us do kingdom business at home, at church, at work, in the world. Let us seek the biggest return on gospel investment in us by investing it in others. John Piper has made famous the phrase, don't waste your life. That's a biblical phrase, but initially he was not inspired by the Bible with that message. It was rather a poem that hung in his kitchen by C.T. Studd. It repeats this phrase over and over, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. It is a very biblical theme. It's a theme that we've seen here, but perhaps my favorite illustration of it comes not from Piper or Studd, but from the life of a man named William Borden. You may recognize the name. You may buy milk from the Borden uh, dairies. It's a long dairy estate. And this man, William Borden, received an uncommon gift from the fruit of the wealth of that company when he graduated high school. And that was a global tour of the world. That was 1904. And while on that trip, Borden saw firsthand the realities of a world in poverty, both physical and spiritual. He began to be burdened for what he saw and began to write home saying that he believed that God wanted him to be at work in missions. That was not what his family wanted to hear. And so, though many of his closest friends and relatives wrote back saying they couldn't understand why he would trade millions of dollars in a life of ease for such difficult work, he quietly opened up the back of his Bible and wrote two words, no reserves. And no reservations about what was going to happen. He was okay giving up the millions. After returning home, Borden enrolled at Yale University where his desire for mission was inflamed rather than quenched. They thought, well, we'll send him off to college. Uh, he'll be at an Ivy League school, get lots of learning education, and God will change his heart. But on campus, it didn't change his heart. In fact, he started a Bible study. By the end of his first year, 150 students were meeting weekly to study the Bible and pray. By the time he graduated, listen to this, Yale University, by the time he graduated around 1910, 1,000 
of the 1,300 students at Yale were in groups meeting for weekly Bible study and prayer. There's a man not hiding his mina. Borden spoke of Christ on campus as well as in the inner city. He founded in college the Yale Hope Mission and ministered to those who were on the streets of New Haven, Connecticut. Orphans, widows, homeless, and hungry were all offered refuge and hope in Christ. When a visitor from overseas was asked what impressed him the most during his visit to America, he remembered his time with Borden and said he was most impressed by, quote, the sight of that young millionaire kneeling with his armor on a bum in the Yale Hope Mission. When Borden graduated from Yale, he turned down several high-paying jobs, quietly opening the back of his Bible again and writing down two more words, no retreat. He entered and graduated from Princeton Seminary and set sail for China. On the way to China, he thought he would stop and witness to the Muslim populations and so learned Egypt, uh, landed in Egypt to study and learn Arabic. And while he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis. Now, if he had been at home at a hospital or in Europe at a hospital, he would have barely had one in four chances of survival. But he's in early 1900s Egypt. And given the level of primitive care there, Borden would have known his chances for survival were slim. And they were. His life only lasted another month. At the age of 25, William Borden was dead. When his Bible was discovered after his death, it was discovered that he'd added two final words to the back. No regrets. We find ourselves looking more like the wicked servant than the faithful ones. We need only remind ourselves of the trust that we have been given. We need only return to the good news of an eternal God who took on flesh to bear our sin. And dwelling on that glorious truth will cause us to see more clearly the call of our captain, our king. And with humble confidence, we likewise will be able to say no reservation, no retreat, no regrets. Father, oh, how I long to have that attitude. So often I don't, Father. So often I have reservation. I retreat and I have regrets. But Father, that is not what you have called us to. You have called us to be servants of your Son, citizens of His kingdom. Father, you have done that by entrusting to us the most precious gift imaginable, the gospel of Christ. Father, may we not fritter away our days. May we not make excuses like the wicked servant. But Father, may we get busy. Not to earn our salvation or cause others to think more highly of us, but to honor the King for whose return we so eagerly await. Father, may we glory in the gospel and may we invest it in the lives of those around us so that truly we will be about the King's business. God, this is our prayer. Only you can fulfill it in our minds and hearts by your word and your spirit. And so that's what we ask for in Christ's name. Amen.